0: About a week ago, I watched my wife do a, a rather unusual thing. We were out at dinner as a family and I uh, had some of my family in town, so we ended up taking two vehicles. And, and after it were dinner, we were leaving the parking lot. My wife is driving our, our van in front of us and, uh, and I'm in, in a car behind her. And, and I watch her uh, before we even get out of the parking lot. She stops the van and I stop behind it. I'm kind of going, what's going on? Then I see her take our four-year-old's absolutely full drink from dinner, hold it out the window... And dump it. And I'm, you know, parked Miner her going, okay, that's interesting. Now, if that was all I would tell you about the story, what conclusions would you draw about Michelle? You might think she's a monster, you know, this is how she treats her children. You know, she's emotionally abusing them. She's robbing them of nutritional value. You know, I don't know what you conclude about her, but it probably wouldn't be good. You know, you'd go, hey, I, I think something's wrong with her. You know, someone should look into her. Now, let me give you a little context of what happened right before that. Now, right before that, I had helped her load our children into the van that she was driving. And I made a simple declaration to all of our children before we left uh, the, the, the dining place. And I said, hey, here's the deal. Get your last drinks in now. We're not bringing them to the car because you know it's hard enough to keep your van clean. So I'm like, we're not bringing them in the car. So everybody followed this rule with the exception Of the four-year-old. And so we all are loading up. I'm getting the kids. I'm helping them all get in the seat. And I look over, and there he is holding his drink, super proud of himself that he, you know, (laughs) evaded the system. And so I grab the drink from him. I put it in the front seat next to where my wife will be driving. And I say, hey, we're not bringing that in the the car. You don't get it. Put him in a seat and all that. And then I say to Michelle as she gets in the van, I took his drink from him. I put it, you know, in in the cup holder next to you. I told him that he doesn't get it. Don't give it to him. Okay, that's what happened right before. Now, what does that add to, to your understanding of my wife? Does that does that change any of the conclusions that, that you, you might think about her? Well, now let me tell you what happened as soon as we got home, because I was a little curious myself. What's what's going on to lead to the cup out the window incident? And so I asked, Hey, I, I you know Michelle, I got to know what what happened. And she said, Well. As soon as we got in the car and you were no longer around, uh, our four-year-old decided to, uh, you know, persuasively try to convince his mother to give him the drink now that dad was no longer in the picture. And he did it utilizing all the techniques that four-year-olds have at their disposal. The kicking and the screaming and the raising the voice and all of that. And so she was trying to logically talk him out of this, realized she wasn't going to get anywhere with that. So she stops the van Picks up his drink, stares at him, makes direct eye contact, and then dumps it out the window. (laughs) To which she tells me he became silent for the rest of the car ride. (laughs) Now, does that change your view of my wife? Now, in all of this, you begin to see a little bit more... Of what's going on. And so you can originally draw the conclusion, hey, I think she's being mean. I don't think she's a real nice mother. To the end of the story, I conclude that is a moment of parental brilliance. I mean, truly, I told her, honey, I've never been more attracted to you than when I saw. (laughs) Just being honest. It was was fantastic. Um, So here's the deal, though. Your view of Michelle is determined by how much of that story you understand. Your, your understanding of her depends on the context of that story. And the same thing is true of God. Your understanding of God today is only as good, is only as accurate as the context in which you understand him. And so just as in that story you get a little glimpse and a little bit more and more and more and more, so too do we approach God. We have these glimpses of God and we go, what is God like? Well, so-and-so told me he was like this. And I heard a pastor one time say, he was like this. And I watched a sermon, he said like this. And I read in a verse, he said like this. And, and we begin to add all these glimpses together. And, and then we arrive at our view of God. And here's what I know. Most of us think like, oh yeah, we just, we just see God the way he is. But I promise you, if there was some way that we could stop and, and every one of us could just come up on stage, share your view of God, explain it, you would realize how many varying difference of opinion we have about God, well, God is like this. No, I don't think he's like, I think he's like this. No, he does this. No, he does that. And so you have all these understandings about God and you might go, well, well so what? Why does it matter what we think about God? And so I think about something that the, the author and the theologian A.W. Tozer once said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. i just wrestle with that idea for a moment. Is that, could that be the most important thing about you, what you think about God? And if this is true, how accurate biblically is your view of God? Now you might think, well, of course, I, I, I just automatically I have a, a perfect understanding of God. Do you? Do you really know, are you, are you confident that you have seen God the way the scriptures have, have tried to get you to see him? And what you realize is that this view of God that you have shapes every other decision you make in your life. It shapes the way you approach God. It shapes the way you try to live out your Christianity. It shapes the way you tell others about God. And so today we're continuing in our series, Redeeming Pleasure. I'm so glad that you're here. You're a part of it. My name is Jeremy, lead pastor here. I just want to welcome you to this series. Uh, We're in week two. So if you've got your journals, go ahead and get those out. We're going to be in week two. I encourage you to take notes as we go. And and if you don't have a journal with you, grab something to take notes with and and write down some of these ideas. As as hopefully we're going to challenge some of the views that you have about God that may not be as accurate as you think they are. And we're just gonna explore this together. Now, if you've got your Bibles, and hopefully you do, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews is in the New Testament. And so if you've got a physical Bible with you, that's awesome, go ahead and turn into the New Testament, find the book of Hebrews. Uh, you'll have some time there, land in chapter one, and we're gonna build up to this passage. If you've got a, a, a Bible app on a phone or a device, I encourage you to get that out, scroll up to Hebrews and, and just get your spot there and, and you'll be ready uh, in just a moment. Now, last week I made the argument that God designed pleasure. Now, for us to even go with that idea, for us to then apply that idea, we have to stop and go, well, what kind of a God do we think he is? And that will determine how we think he designed pleasure. And so today I'm entitling this message, The Angry God in the Sky. Because I think for a lot of us, we might not use those words, but that image captures the the sense of God that we have. Now, as a teacher, I I love ideas. I I love learning new ideas. I love exploring ideas. I love learning where ideas come from, how ideas evolve, how they change over time, how dominant ideas in one era become, you know, weird, random ideas in the next. I I love understanding all this. And so as we look at this idea of an angry God, uh, you can trace this idea back uh, to a very particular moment. There was a preacher in the 1700s named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, it, it, you may have learned about Jonathan Edwards in school, depending on, you know, which classes you attended. And, and I certainly did in seminary. We, we studied him. And, and he, he plays such a pivotal role in much of our understanding about God. But you, you, you might not be familiar with him. And you might go, this guy lived in the 1700s. How, how could it possibly be that this guy has shaped our view of God today. And yeah, I, I just, I promise you, it's true. And as you understand it, as you research it, you realize how, how much his thinking has influenced our understanding today of God. Uh, They've looked at that sermon, and it's generally guarded as the most important sermon in American history, okay? So just think through that. This guy preached this sermon and it has become a legendary sermon about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, you may not actually know what he said in that sermon, though. And maybe you've never read it, maybe you have. And, and so in case you haven't, I want to read a snippet of it for you. I want you to get the flavor of the view of God that Jonathan Edwards had and the view that he preached to his congregation that has largely shaped our understandings of God even today, even if you've never heard of this guy. This guy has shaped our understandings of God. So here's the way Jonathan Edwards thought of God. Just sit back. And just drink this in, all right? Here's what he said. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight." You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. (laughs) And we'll just call it a wrap there and have a great day. Now they tell us, after Jonathan Edwards gave this sermon, that a number of people in his congregation were, were stirred up. Right? You can imagine a, soul, a whole sermon of that language, literally people describe it, that they're, they're, the people began to writhe and convulse on the floor with, with this, the, the disgust of themselves in front of a God like that. Now, is, is God like that? Well, you might go, that, that, that imagery sounds a bit intense. Maybe I don't quite resonate with that. But maybe you're like, I still kind of view God as angry at me, but, but maybe not to that level. Maybe that sounds a little bit extreme. Let me give you another analogy. Uh, I once read a passage in a book uh, where, where uh, the author was describing, kind of similar to that, uh, a view of God. And the author didn't believe this, but he was describing the way a lot of people view God. And he created this, this analogy, this, this made-up character called Uncle Ben. And this is guy named David Dark wrote, wrote a book where he, he describes Uncle Ben and, and the worship of Uncle Ben. And he's using this as, as an image of how a lot of people think about God. I, I want to share this with you because I remember when I read this years ago, I, I just saved it. So I went, man, that hits on it for so many people. I think so many people think of God in these terms. And, and so let me read Uncle Ben to you uh, from, from a guy named David Dark. Here's how he describes it. At the beginning of each week, There's a meeting in the largest house in town. Upon arriving, people get caught upon good fellowship and animated discussion of the week's events, with conversations straining in the direction of Uncle Ben. When a bell sounds, talk ceases. Everyone moves to the staircase and descends into the basement. Each person sits facing an enormous, rumbling furnace. Seated close to the furnace door, as if he were a part of the furnace itself, is a giant man in black overalls. His face is turned to them. They wait in silence. In time, the man turns around. His face is angry, contorted. He fixes a threatening stare of barely contained rage on each person. And then he roars, am I good? To which they respond in unison, yes, Uncle Ben, you are good. Am I worthy of praise? You alone are worthy of our praise. Do you love me more than anything, more than anyone? We love you, and you alone, Uncle Ben. You better love me, or I'm going to put you in here. He opens the furnace door to reveal a gaping darkness. Forever. Out of the darkness can be heard sounds of anguish and lament. Then he closes the furnace door, and he turns his back to them. They sit in silence. Finally, feeling reasonably assured that Uncle Ben has finished saying what he has to say, they leave. They live their lives as best they can. They try to think and speak truthfully and do well by one another. They resume their talk of the wonders of Uncle Ben's love in anticipation of the next week's meeting. Does that describe the view that you have of God? Does that capture the feelings in which you sometimes try to worship a God who seems to be very displeased with you? Like I said, I I read that a number of years ago and just I thought it was so powerful. I remember one time I was speaking at a church in Minnesota, and, uh, and I was talking about our views of God. And so I used that illustration, and, and I read it. And, and a mother and a daughter came up to me after the sermon. I didn't know them because it, it was not my normal church. And so they said, hey, so I want to introduce ourselves to you. And the mother said to me, hey, I just wanted to give you some feedback. And I said, okay. And uh, she goes, uh, when you gave that illustration of Uncle Ben, uh, I literally thought, what an absurd preacher illustration. I said, okay, thank you for the feedback. That's really encouraging. You know, I... Glad you, glad you gave that to me. She goes, I thought it was such a dumb argument. And I literally thought no one views like that. She goes, so I leaned over to my daughter, who's, you know, sitting next to her. And she goes, and I told my daughter, this is absurd. Nobody thinks about God like that. And in a moment of shocking vulnerability and transparency, her daughter leaned back over and said, mom, that's exactly how I view God. And this mom's jaw just dropped. And, and she said, I had no idea. And then with tears in her eyes, she tells me, thank you for helping me to understand that this is how my daughter sees God. Now, you might go, Jeremy, that absolutely captures my view of God. Or, or you might go, it doesn't. But what you have to realize, for a lot of people, it does. For a lot of people, if we're honest, if we, if we were to truly tell someone what we really think about God, we would say things like, well, he's really disappointed in me. He's really frustrated with me. I really let him down. He's angry at me. He's, he's, he's bothered by me. He doesn't like me. These are the views that we have about God. And then we try to share those views with others. And we try to, hey, you should, you should worship the God that, that I have. And, and here's what he's like. Now, I want to ask a question today to, to all the Christians in the room and those watching online if you're not a christian and you're still wrestling this whole thing we are so glad that you're here uh, you are you're absolutely welcome to be a part of this community before you agree with us okay absolutely glad that you're here but you're off the hook for this question all right i'm just gonna i'm gonna drill down on, on us christians for a second okay christians here's here's a question for you i want you to think through right why do we feel the need to scare people into following god let's just be real for a minute why Do we feel the need to scare people into following God? Now, your answer might be, well, because I was scared into following God. And so now I'm returning the favor and I'm scaring everyone else into following God, right? Maybe that was your your story. Here's my answer. Here's what I suspect is going on. Why do we scare people into following God? Because we don't think they would follow him otherwise. Our view of God is not compelling enough on its own. And, and so we, th- we don't think anybody would just choose God because he's good. And, and they're like, wow, I am drawn to that. So instead what we do is, well, our view of God's not that great, so let's terrify people of the alternatives. And when they're so scared of not choosing him, then they'll choose him and mission accomplished. And you realize why so many people go to God and they go to church and they're like, this is not good news doesn't sound like good news. I'm, I'm running away from that which I fear. Now, here's a challenge. The angry God preaching works. There's a reason why Jonathan Edwards is a legend as a preacher. That sermon worked. It, it, it's still studied and read today. There are angry preachers. You can turn on your TV and you will see plenty of angry preachers because it works. But here's the question I have. Not does it work, we know it does. The question is, is it true? Is God really like that? Is God's default position towards you, one of anger and disgust? Is he literally holding you over the fires of hell? Is that the way God thinks of you? Amen. But let's get there in a minute. (laughs) More importantly, I I like the interaction, more importantly, what happens to us when we conclude God is like that? So if we go, yeah, that's how God is. What happens to us? Well, a number of years ago, I was renting a car when I was traveling. I don't know about you, but whenever I rent a a car, I get my defenses up because it's a situation where they often try to upsell you on something. Hey, you want an extra this? You want this? You know. And so I have just learned. I've done it enough to learn. Just go in there and say no to everything because they're going to try to add on. and, And I've walked away. I'm going... How is my bill so much higher than I thought it was going to be? Because I got upsold on stuff. And so I just have learned over the years, go into that, have your guards up, be ready to say no. And so one day I I go and I'm renting a car and I'm in in my rental mode. You know, I'm ready to go. And and a lady says to me, hey, would you like a charger? I'm like, who doesn't carry a phone charger these days? That's absurd. So I'm like, "Uh, no thanks, I got it. She looks at me and she goes, you don't want a charger? (laughs) Okay, lady, I used to be in sales I know what you're doing here, all right? Uh, yeah, no, I'm good. It's not, you're not going to put this on me. I'm going to put it right back on you. You're the weird one, not me. I don't need it. I've got two chargers in my bag right now. Like, I'm good, you know. And so I say defiantly, boldly, like, no, I don't need a charger. At that point, she gives me this really weird look. It's the kind of look where uh, you begin to reassess, like, am I missing something? You know, like, have you ever had that look? And so she's staring at me with this perplexed look on her face, and I begin to replay the conversation in my mind, going, okay, Jeremy, you're missing something here. Replay, replay, replay. Finally, as we awkwardly stare at one another, it dawns on me. I say to her, are you asking me about a Dodge Charger? She goes, yeah, I'm trying to give you a free upgrade. <laughs> then yes, I will take a Charger. I mean, this lady's looking at me like, what kind of moron has this much baggage with a, a car rental? Like, hey, dude, I'm trying to help you out here, right? Here's the point. This is how most of us approach God. Hey, God, oh, my defenses are up because I know what you would do if I trusted you. You'd send me to Africa or you'd make me give all my money away or you'd make me serve people. Like, I'm not interested, God, so I'm going to follow you at a distance. And God's like, really? Like, that's your response to me? God's like, I'm trying to give you. Something, no, no, God, I've been down this road before, that's not going to work on me, I know what you're up to, I know all your games, you're just trying to get stuff from me. God's like, uh, no, 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 I think you're you're missing something here. I'm trying to give you something, and, and you can't see it. See, the reason why your view of God matters so immensely is when you have this negative view of God, you will never be able to experience and receive what God has for you. You will never see what is right in front of you because you will, you will translate it into other terms and go, oh, this is some conspiracy of what God's trying to do. Meanwhile, God is going, why can't you see what I'm offering you? Why can't you see what I am inviting you to experience? And yet that only happens when we have a good, positive view of God. And we understand that, oh, God created pleasure. Now, at this point, you might be going, Jeremy, uh, you're sugarcoating this. That's not, it, it, it sounds great, but there's no way that it can be true. God's just not like that. All right, let, let's, let's dive into two objections you may have, you may be thinking about, uh, as to why God couldn't be good. Why, we have to have an angry view of God because of two, at least two reasons. Here are the number two, uh, the two biggest ones that I, I see and, and I hear from people. Number one, what about the wrath of God, Right? Isn't God this wrathful, you know, guy who's just ready to smite us all? Isn't that his hobby, to throw lightning bolts at us and, and you know, bring disaster upon us? Isn't this what he does? Well, let's, let's, let's understand this from a different vantage point. Now, we've been talking about pleasure, how to have a life to the full, a life the way God has designed it. And last week, if you're with us, I, I explained a, a pleasure cycle that begins in the opening pages of Scripture, but it continues in our lives today, and you can watch this message online, but, but just in case, to, to give us up to speed, here, here's the, the pleasure cycle that I explained. So in Genesis 3, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and there's this little cycle happens. They experience pleasure on their terms, okay. We're going to take some of the fruit. Uh, God told us not to. We're going to disregard that. We know better, bite into the fruit, pleasure on their terms. Immediately, though, they experience the natural consequences of that. All of a sudden, they realize we're naked, we're deficient. Something's wrong. Something's broken. There is a consequence to the pleasure on their terms, which then leads to them hiding from God in shame. And and so this cycle is what you see in the garden, and this cycle continues in our lives today, which is why we get a little squirrely talking about pleasure in church because our minds immediately kick into the cycle and end there. Go, oh, pleasure, that's just shameful. Only shame happens that. Because we do not understand the way God designed it. We're doing it outside of his design. Now, take this concept. We talked about this last week. Add in the wrath of God. How does this play into this? The wrath of God is step two. Wait, wait. That's not not enough to be the wrath of God. The wrath of God has got to be this active, violent, aggressive, vengeful thing. No, the wrath of God is when God looks at you and says, you're about to make a really bad choice. And this choice is going to bring harm to you and it's going to hurt you, and it's going to rob you of what I want for you. But I'm not going to force myself upon you, so I'm going to allow you to choose it. The wrath of God in the Garden of Eden was when God watched them holding the fruit moments before they bite into it, and God knows, do not eat that fruit. It is not going to produce what you think. And God says, I'm going to allow you to eat it. He doesn't stop them. There's no angel that swoops in and swats the, you know, the, the fruit away from them and goes, no, you can't do this. Yeah, goes, hey, uh, I'm going to let you do it. And so God allows it to happen. This is the wrath of God. It's just not the way we often think about it. I love the way that the theologian Brad Jerzak says it. He says, the wrath of God is understood as divine consent to our own self-destructive defiance. The wrath of God is God saying, okay, I will allow you to do what is ultimately going to bring harm to you, but you, you are so set upon it. It is when God is literally, his heart is breaking, watching Adam and Eve going, do not eat this. I instructed you, I told you, it's not going to be good for you. But the wrath of God is when God says, okay, y- y- you can do it. I'm not going to stop you anymore. And, and I think the grace of God is every time he intervenes and stops us from doing the things that we want to do, and the wrath is the moment he goes, hey, I'm going to let you do it. And God and his sovereignty and his goodness will allow you to choose outside of him. And you might think, yes, that's exactly what I want. That's actually the wrath of God. If you've ever eaten at a Burger King, you you may know that Burger King has a slogan that they say. The slogan they use is, have it your way. Now, whether or not this is is actually what happens when you go to Burger King is a separate issue. However, this is their advertising, so let's talk about it. So when you go to Burger King, the, the point they want you to understand, right, is it's all about You. You tell us. We work for you. You customize it. You figure out whatever you want. We're here to help you. Have it your way. When you're at Burger King and someone says to you, have it your way, that's a great thing. When you are talking to God and God says to you, have it your way, that's a really bad thing. That's the wrath of God. When God says to you, okay, you don't want to follow me. You don't want to trust me. You don't want to receive the goodness that I have for you. Have it your way. And it's a loving response to a creation that has free will. And God says, I'm going to allow you to do what you want to do. And so uh, ironically, so many of us are so afraid of the wrath of God that, that we end up going on our own direction. And it's the very thing that produces the wrath of God in our life. Because God's going, just trust me. Just follow what I'm instructing you to do. We go, no, no, I'm doing it my own way. Sometimes God says, okay, you can have it your way. Or how about another objection, okay, so we've got the wrath of God. Well, what about all the Old Testament passages where God seems to be really angry? Now, here's the reality. Uh, most of us haven't read the Old Testament, uh, at least in its entirety, which is why this isn't a bigger deal. I promise you, if you, you know, your goal is to read the Bible this year and you read through the whole Old Testament, I promise you it will mess you up. Right? How's that for a, for a promise from your pastor? I promise you will mess you up because you will get to passages you're like, wait, God did what? And then God told them to do what? And God wanted what to happen? And you will start going, oh, that doesn't feel right. And there are some horrific things in the Old Testament attributed to God. And if we're honest, at first blush, when you read the God of the Old Testament, then you read Jesus in the New Testament, it looks like a different God. Something happened. And a lot of us, we we don't know how to reconcile that. We don't know how to make sense out of that. And so we just go kind of just skip over that other part because I'm not sure what to do with it. Or I love the way that John Mark Comer says it. He says, the Father is the grumpy old warmonger in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the son who went off to Berkeley and came home with all sorts of radical ideas about grace and love and tolerance. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like the son better. He's cool. Let's, let's go with that guy. Like his dad has issues, but but the son's pretty cool. So... So most of us, we just like, just ignore the Old Testament. Like, don't don't read it. Don't talk about it. We're not really sure what to do with that. Let's just focus on Jesus. Now, let me give you a little spoiler alert in case you haven't read the Old Testament yet. It's the same God. (laughs) Just want to let you know. But here's the point, okay, and this is is where it gets interesting. You got to listen to this one carefully. But both depictions of God are not equally accurate. This is where Christians go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Both depictions of God are not equally accurate. Accurate. And this is where we go, okay, how how do I make sense of this? Now, I'm going to take you on a fun little journey here. I want to show you a verse in the New Testament. One of the apostles of Jesus who spends his time with Jesus, the way he describes Jesus, the way he invites us to understand who he is. If you have ever read the New Testament, you have likely read this passage and thought, oh, what a great idea. And skipped right over the controversial claim that that this writer is making. Here's the way John says it in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, hath made him known. Okay, what's so, what's so crazy about that? Well, notice the claim that John is making in explaining who Jesus is. So this is, this is a verse about Jesus. Jesus is himself in close relationship with God, Father, he's made the Father known, all that. Okay, cool. But John says no one has ever seen God. Put it in context. This is written in the New Testament, which comes after all the stories in the Old Testament. That all happened prior to this. Does John not know what happened in the Old Testament? I I have read the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of issues I have with this verse. Uh, What about Abraham, Father Abraham? He sees God in Genesis chapter 18. What, What about him? What about Jacob? He sees God in Genesis 32. You, you can read these stories. What about Moses? He sees God in Exodus 34. What about Isaiah? He sees God in Isaiah 6. I could go on and on and on. John, what's the deal? Does John not know his Old Testament? This is awkward. I mean, it's like he's talking about Jesus. He has no idea of what has happened before him. Here's what I think John would say. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know about all those guys, but none of them saw Jesus. And you might be going, Well, what does that matter? John's going, no, no, no." none of them saw Jesus. Now, if you're with me in Hebrews chapter 1, we've got all this set up to this big idea. Here's here's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how the author of Hebrews writes it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He's referencing people, you know, like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah. That God spoke to them in various times and in various ways. Verse 2. But... This is a big but in the Bible. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is not a newcomer into the scene. He was always around. He has always been around and he was around during the Old Testament. Verse 3, the son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact Representation of his being. Notice what it doesn't say. He's a partial representative. He kind of looks like God. He somewhat shows us what God is like. No, no. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is an unbelievable argument for Jesus that the New Testament writers are saying. If I could paraphrase what Hebrews chapter 1 is saying, I would paraphrase it like this. God has a face. God has a face. Like, What's God like? Is he angry? Is he up in the sky? Is he throwing lightning bolts? Does he look like Zeus? No. God has a face. And we've seen it. Not literally. We've, we've seen it through Jesus. We know that's what God looks like. They they, they didn't know that. And so John can look at the entire Old Testament and go, they had not seen God because they never saw the face of Jesus. It's an incredible claim for us today. Now last week when we were talking about pleasure, I set up this uh, principle. By pursuing pleasure on God's terms, we experience more of it. Why is that true? It's true because God is not an angry God up in the sky who is against you. It's because God looks like Jesus. That's why that's true. Let me say it another way God can't not look like Jesus. It's a lot of negatives in that sense. God can't not look like Jesus. The only way God ultimately looks, the way the New Testament writers explain it, is like Jesus. That's what God looks like. And anytime we decide, I'm gonna pursue pleasure on my terms, we, we are opting out of the goodness that Jesus is offering us. And the Bible would call that sin. There is sin. And there are consequences to sin. Oh, Jeremy, you're sure sugarcoating this. No, there's sin. There's consequences to sin. And there's a the wrath of God. And God will allow you to sin. He will allow you to choose other than him. But the reason you experience the wrath of God is not because God is angry and can't wait to smite you. And it just has this, this you know, revenge thing against you. It's because God is so good that in his goodness, if you want to choose other than him, he will allow it. And in the process, you experience the wrath of God. And so many Christians, we we follow God because of what we're afraid of, because of this fear. And and that might be a starting point. That's never the story that the, the New Testament writers depict. That's never the story in its entirety. It's not just, hey, run away from what you're afraid of. It's running toward what you love. And so we don't follow God, we don't, we don't become a Christian because we're running away from the moral police. Because we're running toward Jesus. And we realize he has something incredible to offer us if we would trust him. So as we close today, here's my question for all of us. When you think about God, does your God look like Jesus? When you conjure up your, your, whatever you would use to describe God, does it look like Jesus? if the answer to any degree is no, as John would say in chapter 1, you haven't yet seen God. Haven't seen him yet. At least not the biblical view of God. You you want to see the biblical view of God? you got to see Jesus. That's what God looks like. So when you pray to God, think about Jesus. When you wonder what God is like, think about Jesus. When you wonder what God thinks about you. Think about Jesus. When you consider actually trusting him and living your life in a a way that would be different than the world around you, and you you wonder, would it be worth it? Think about Jesus. Because this is the God who is inviting you to experience him and to experience a different kind of life. So I want to close with a quote from a guy named Brian Zand. And he's writing in response to Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And, and helping to reframe how, how we see God. Here's, here's what Brian says. The hands of God are not active, actually hurling thunderbolts from heaven like Zeus of the Greek pantheon. The hands of God have been stretched out in love where they were nailed to a tree. The nail-pierced hands of God now reach out to every doubter and every sufferer, revealing the wounds of love. The hands of God are not hands of wrath, but... Hands of mercy. To be a sinner in these hands is where the healing begins. Let's pray together. God, if we're honest, a lot of us came in here today with all kinds of understandings of what you're like, and many of us just assumed you couldn't really be that good. That you you, you have an anger toward us. You have a desire to express wrath toward us. You, you, you have some agenda against us. And yet, as we understand what the New Testament writers are saying, we realize that's not what you look like. You look like Jesus, who went to a cross to take our sins, our mistakes, our failures, and instead of us experiencing the consequences of them as the cycle would normally dictate, you stepped in front of that, and you experienced the consequences of that. And you invite us now to trust in you, to trust that you have a better life for us, a, a different way of living, not because we run away from all that we are in fear of, but because we run to an incredibly beautiful, profound view of God, that we have seen your face. You are not distant and far away and angry. You are are Jesus and you are here. God, may we see you in your fullness and may it change the way we live because of what we see in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.